Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When I'm gathering people and I want to make a change happen, what do I believe my role is? Mm. If I'm a leader who believes that my job is to give people the answer, to force a change, that I'm the hero, that they need me, that will affect the way in which I gather. So using this model, I've been able to sort of diagnose entire cultures of companies, given how they approach change and what they believe about their employees. But on the other hand, if we believe that people are capable of growth and change, that they're already whole, that they don't need us, they can find their own answer, then we often will gather and approach change differently. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everybody. And we are also joined today by Lindsay Kaplan, a communication strategist helping organizations enhance the way they gather for the effect that they want, and the author of the forthcoming book, The Gathering Effect. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, Rodney. Hey. On today's episode, we're going to talk about exactly that, how to use gatherings to make change. But before we do that, we will make a little micro change with a check-in. Let's do it. Also, we might have to ask Lindsay her view on check-in rounds as a <laughs> gatherings expert. But first, we're going to do one. So we will begin this episode, like all the episodes, with our check-in question for today, which is, what is your favorite kind of lazy day? When you've got a whole day unfolding in front of you to just be lazy, what's the perfect, what's the platonic ideal of that thing? Let's go Aaron, then Lindsay, then me. Okay. I think rather than paint the picture of the whole day, I'm just going to say that if I'm not eating food off of my chest, I haven't fully succeeded in the lazy day. (laughs) And if it's on a plate, that's me doing well. I'm picturing like the Chipotle burrito. Yeah, just like my chest is where the food rests. And that's that's how I know I'm being lazy. Gross. You're welcome. Lindsay. You asked. I did. (laughs) That is great. I think for me, honestly, it's probably watching the Friends reunion on HBO Max for the fifth or sixth time. (laughs) Wow. Consecutively on the couch. Mm -hmm. And really, I think that is my final answer. Well, I'm glad to have that recommendation. I haven't seen it. Mm. Oh, Rodney, come on. It's a trip. I trust you. I trust you, Lindsay Kaplan, and I will watch that thing. (laughs) Um, For me, mostly it is being able to do minimum things, but do them all outside. I want to eat outside. I want to crossword outside. I want to snuggle my dogs outside. I just want to be outside on a nice day with no agenda, doing all of my activities, (laughs) though they are limited. In the sun. 
Just, you're basically living outdoors. I prefer the, to be living outdoors. Yeah. All that's, right. that's the truth. Okay. So today's topic is about gathering, but specifically about using gatherings to make change. And so let's start by asking you, Lindsay, what do you mean when you say gathering? Sure. Yeah. So gathering is a, a communication skill. And I view gathering as bringing people together to match a message with a moment. So it's less of a dinner party or simply a meeting and more I'm bringing an idea or a piece of content to share with people at a specific moment in time. So in our companies, there's lots of examples, right? There's town halls, all hands, offsites, manager training classes, new hire orientations, conferences, et cetera. These gatherings are happening all the time, whether they're virtual or in person. Got it. That makes sense. Let's dig into the gathering effect then. So what what is the gathering effect when when people think of their gathering and what they hope will happen? What does the actual effect more often look like? Sure. So let's take a step back first. So we look at gatherings as, or I look at gatherings as the most common tool to spark movement or change in our companies. Mm-hmm. When we want people to do something differently, we tend to start by bringing them together by gathering them. Yeah. So we all have this tool, right? But we can create different effects depending on how we use it. We all have a hammer, but we can use it for different things. So part of what I teach organizations to do is to start with the effect that they want first, rather than just the content that they want to share, which Mm. is a bit novel or different for folks, a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And there tend to be four effects that we can achieve. There's compliance. So your typical kind of check the box. (laughs) People do what they're told. There's informing. So we share information or, you know, to use an analogy from, from music, the audience will listen to your song. Mm-hmm. There's entertaining, which is what we what we know it means, where the audience will sing the song with you. And then there's engagement, which is to generate new thinking, buy-in, ownership, perhaps some behavior change. And that's when people don't just sing the song with you, but they share it with other people. So I'd say most people tend to think they want engagement. Mm-hmm. That may not be what they really need. And part of the work is figuring out what the effect has to be. But the challenge I found is, is two. One, there's a gap in what people conceive in the gathering and then how it's perceived. So oftentimes leadership will be engaged about the change already, but the way that they conceive the gathering leaves people feeling like it's compliance. And the other challenge is that we tend to think the reaction is enough to say, yep, that was engagement, that worked, mm-hmm. when really it's the <laughs> results that we're after. You know, you you and I sort of met because we share this space in terms of workshop design and facilitation and things like that. And of course, most most leaders do say what they want, of course, is engagement. And my question to you, the entertaining outcome feels very straightforward to me. The compliance or informing effects of a gathering. I have a question to you of should we be gathering for those effects? Like, is it worth having a gathering that's just about compliance or the pushing of information? What do you think about that? That's a great question. The motto I tend to follow is we want to uh, pull people together and push them apart. So if we need their buy-in and ownership, then we want to pull them together. If we're just pushing information, so compliance or informing, especially in a virtual world, we can rely on asynchronous communication. So I think we can gather for all different effects, but if you want the most bang for your buck, I would save it for when we really need engagement. So I'm curious, 
It seems like this is something you've spent an awful lot of time thinking about. Are there particular personal experiences at work, either as a facilitator or as the recipient of certain intended effects that kind of drew your focus to gatherings as the place to to plant a flag here? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been gathering for a really long time, but across <laughs> a few different disciplines. So I started my career as a comedy writer in Hollywood. So focusing on the entertaining side of gathering. As one does. Then I found my way into education and working in corporate adult development. So for DreamWorks and McKinsey, helping to gather for education, and then became an organizational psychologist focusing on gathering for transformation. And across all those three disciplines, I found sort of reliance on the tool and the power and the pitfalls of gathering across these three disciplines. Um, It was specifically, though, in my work in learning and development where I saw this tool was really in many ways, misused and misunderstood. Uh, And I wanted to find a way to explain why the change people wanted would be embraced or why it wouldn't. And that really drew my interest to this specific tool. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect segue to something that we wanted to talk about. So we know the statistic about organizational change and that large scale transformation programs usually fail about 70% of the time or don't deliver what they were expected to. And your site says that the culprit for that is poor gatherings. So I'm curious, you know, why do you think we suck at this so bad? And what are some of the most common pitfalls that you see? Sure. So I believe that the way that we gather is the way that we approach change. So we can look at it as a symptom of the larger problem. And part of the reason for that is our reliance on this tool. And the other part is, you know, the gatherings that stick and the change that stick actually have common characteristics. That's what my work has shown me. That's my my research has shown me. And these characteristics are, are less about the content that we share and more about the conditions that we create. Mm-hmm. So I think our over-reliance on content and information is, is part of the culprit. And the other part of the culprit is, again, what we're looking for is often incorrect. We're looking for, did people have fun? Did they like it? What's their reaction versus the result that we're after? Yeah, I love that. And it's funny, I was talking to a friend at dinner last night who's going through a a very chaotic interview process. And I was saying to him, and I think I've said it on this show before, like, assume that the culture of this organization is being telegraphed to you through this process because what is happening there is going to be a totem for your experience of decision-making or of meetings or of everything else that's, that's up there. And I feel like your assertion is the same, which is, you know, show me, show me the town hall and I'll show you the OS of this place (laughs) because it's, you know, because they don't, they don't tend to diverge and be, wildly different. They tend to just be patterns that repeat. Yeah. And also this is a very high stakes form of messaging, right? Not just in the time and the trust that it entails, but the money that we spend. And Mm -hmm. these gatherings are used, I think, often in the most important moment in an employee's journey. So when they become a manager for the first time or their new hire orientation, or when you introduce new values, and this is the moment when you really need to make change stick. So if we can understand how to gather well, then we can understand how to make really any change that we want stick and have and have clarity to build that foundation for all the changes to come. So I am curious when, when I looked at this, this framework that you've sp- begun to outline here, there's a, a pulling versus a pushing and then a one size fits all versus a personalization. These become kind of the polarities of this model. Can you talk a little bit more about those and how you came to them and, and how they work with each other? 
Sure. So all gatherings that we've been a part of tend to fall on a spectrum from push to pull and from one size fits all to personalized. So let's start with push and pull. Um, push and pull is really about how active or how passive are the employees in the gathering? Are they consuming information or are they co-creating and contributing to the gathering? So I would, you know, it's no, no dummy. Most of our gatherings are push, right? That's just mm-hmm. the common default experience. It's done at us and not with us. Let's think of a typical company meeting or company gathering. In terms of one size fits all and personalized, the key question here is, is it about anyone or is it about you? So how close uh, is the material to us personally? How relevant is it to us? And then the second part of that is how important is the audience or the employee to the gathering? Are they replaceable and visible? Do we need them there? One size fits all. It, you could be anyone. Anyone riding the ride at Disneyland doesn't matter. Personalized, it's actually made for you. So you can plot your gathering across these different spectrums. And then depending on the effect that you want, you can make different choices that move the gathering in the direction that makes the most sense for you. Are there other spectrums or polarities that you either considered when sort of building the model or have considered since that are interesting to you to to kind of make it a a 3D model? (laughs) I think, Erin, yeah, let's make it more complicated. I think that... (laughs) I mean, as a fellow um, <laughs> model maker, I, I know what's on the cutting room floor. Yeah, there's been a lot of different versions. People have suggested different names, like customized, for example, but that's not sure. really what we're after here. And I get that question a lot around customization. People think, oh, that's really expensive. I have to create a different gathering each time. That's mm. not what we're saying. What we're saying is you have to make it feel as though it's made for that unique group. And again, it's not through changing the content. It's through the conditions. So the same leader can give the same speech 100 times. They're not changing the content. They're making specific choices that make it feel as though it's made for that group in that moment. But I think customization is the one that stands out to me as a, as a cutting room floor. And I am curious, given, I mean, this is Brave New Work, so I have to ask, a lot of the structures and models you're referencing are leaders and managers and employees and who works for who and who's in charge and who's hosting. How does this change in a cooperative environment or a peer-based environment, like, you know, something that's being produced by everyone? Yeah, I think ultimately there's someone who cares about an idea or is engaged around something and wants to build a community or build an audience or get other people rallied around it. They want to create a gathering that produces an effect. And it doesn't matter if it's a leader or a manager, it could be a fellow employee. Change happens across the organization, uh, top to bottom. So in that way, I think it's it's a, a skill that really anyone can learn. And at the end of the day, what this is really teaching us, I believe, is how to connect our idea with somebody else. Mm-hmm. So... Lindsay, I feel like you've touched on, in your description of of sort of this framework, you've touched on what our typical design defaults are in meetings. We tend to see more push. We tend yep. to see more one size fits all. If we assume that those are some of the default designs, why do we have those? Uh, especially when we know <laughs> that a lot, you know, a lot of our work with, is with leaders too. And, and we hear their dissatisfaction as well. They're like, oh, it is really a a life suck to stand in front of a group for 60 minutes and just walk through PowerPoint slides because I can tell everyone's sleeping or texting yeah. about me and my ugly shirt. So if the deliverer isn't necessarily stoked and the, we know the participants aren't necessarily engaged, why are we doing this? Why why do we have these defaults <laughs> and why do they persist? Mm. Yeah. Well, I have a couple 
a couple guesses. I'm curious what you two would say as well. I think one of them is honestly the way that we were raised in some of our educational institutions, meaning meaning the formula is we sit and we listen and someone talks and we're there to just sort of uh, learn by being a consumer of information. So Mm -hmm. we do what we're taught. That's one. I think two, maybe a bit more controversial is our mindset, meaning when I'm gathering people or I want to make a change happen, what do I believe my role is? Mm. If I'm a leader who believes that my job is to give people the answer, to force a change, that I'm the hero, that they need me, that will affect the way in which I gather. So using this model, I've been able to sort of diagnose entire cultures of companies, given how they approach change and what they believe about their employees. But on the other hand, if we believe that people are capable of growth and change, that they're already whole, that they don't need us, they can find their own answer, then we often will gather and approach change differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do, you, what do you all think? I mean, my first reaction is that we tend to do two things in organizations. One is that we don't preserve enough time to prepare to do anything interesting or different or clever in this space. So what literally happens is the gathering sneaks up on us. And given the amount of email and other meetings and other responsibilities and getting, you know, hitting the quarter that's going on, it does feel like "Eh, I'm just going to phone this one in. And the move I know, to your point about habits and norms, the move I know is like, just whip out the deck and, and talk at everybody. And then I think ego plays a huge role. I really do. I think people like to hold court. They like to hear their own voice. And it feels like, you know, my job is to stand up here and, and rah, rah, rah the troops. That's so funny. I have a totally different take. I think it's the inverse of mm. what you said. Cool. So I feel like speaking in front of groups, uh, and I know that's not the only kind of gathering that we're talking about, but I think in sure. this example, that's where both of our minds went. I think it feels risky to mm. leaders. And... What I see is that there's over-preparation. It's like, let's look at the slides 400 times. I'm scared to be in front of these people. But what's not scary is looking at the deck again. So (laughs) I think like people fall into that thing where they think, if I can control this content and like the formatting of these bullet points, I will somehow reduce the fear of being up there. And I think what's scary about being up there is many fold. But one of the things that I think is the scary, yes, besides just, you know, natural fear of public speaking and scrutiny and things like that, is that there's a level of transparency when you're a leader in front of a large group that many leaders protect themselves from necessarily having to live in very frequently. Mm. And so it's like in in microcosms, you can be slipperier. Like I can say one thing to you on Tuesday. I can say sure. something else to Lindsay on Wednesday. When I'm up there in front of a town hall of people or my all hands meeting, everybody is hearing the same thing and they're comparing notes. And so I think leaders really struggle with what is a message that is meaningful in some way that's not just like so sterile and nothing that it says nothing, which is most of what we get. And what is something that I can live with? Because if I say it here, people are going to hold me to it. Don't screw it up don't screw it up. So I think it's perception of risk and fear and like lack of ability to sort of pivot and steer. But I also think that it usually highlights like a deep mistrust in the organization. I mean, how many times have we all been in a conversation with a leader prepping for something like, you know, a workshop or Mm -hmm. 
and ask me anything. And they want the questions pre-scripted because they're so quote unquote worried about what people are going to ask them. I'm like, who do you think these monsters are that are going to stand up in the middle of an auditorium and be like, how much money did you make in stock options last year? You know what I mean? Like human beings generally are not super want to show up power figures in front of everyone. I mean, it certainly happens, but I wouldn't say it's the norm, but whenever we talk about doing things that feel more emergent in nature or more cooperative or more participatory, I often hear that pushback. That's like very worst case scenario thinking about what someone in the audience might get up to. Mm. What I'm hearing you say, Rodney, is that people are afraid to give up control. Mm -hmm. Totally. If you all like what you're hearing, we would so appreciate a review. We read them. We love them. We send them to our friends and family to tell them we're not (laughs) wasting our lives. So please do leave us one or forward our show to someone who needs it. So jumping off from where we just were, Lindsay, I'm, I'm very curious about more specific moves. So now we have a sense of what are the effects that we're designing for. But if we're actually going to design this gathering, what are some of those meeting moves that you've you know, noticed, developed, uh, curated through this work? Sure. So I think it, again, goes back to the effect that we want. Let's assume for this example that we want more pull and personalize. We want more engagement. So let's start with pull moves. And, And what pull moves really are, are helping people, meaning the employees in the gathering, be more active instead of passive. So the gathering is being done with them and not at them. I think one of my favorite moves is to give people a role from the beginning or a sense of ownership of the gathering. This doesn't mean icebreakers or games necessarily, but you can do this in various ways. You can put a question on the screen when people join so that they immediately have a role and are thinking about something. You can give folks a prompt to pay attention to as the gathering goes on, or if you can find a way to give people a choice, meaning if you are launching your new values, say, you know, choose one that resonates with you and do X, Y, and Z. So all of these moves or choices, what they do is they demonstrate to people that you need their thinking, right? And they feel seen. I think the other pull move is to really up people's status. So Mm -hmm. ask for feedback or show something unfinished and say, Mm -hmm. hey, as we're going through this, what do you think? Give us your feedback. Or, you know, my favorite example when I taught uh, workshops on feedback was to start the gathering by saying, what do you know about this topic already? So you're pulling on what people already know and building up their expertise and their efficacy from the get-go instead of just pushing content on them. And are there tools or preferences that you have to enhance a gathering? So let's say, for example, that we're still in a in an in-person world and we're in the room. Are you thinking about how people are moving around? Are you thinking about, you know, doing physical writing and drawing and collaborating or or you know, allowing people to have technology, not have technology. Does any of that figure into how to design for that engagement effect? Yeah. What I like to say is that this this work is content agnostic and tool agnostic, so mm-hmm. or channel agnostic. What I'm looking for when I watch a gathering, when I'm being asked to enhance it, is three things. I'm looking at the framing, so how you use your language to get a sense of buy-in. That's the same, whether it's on Zoom or in person. I'm looking at the space that you use. So less the physical space, actually, and how you help people absorb or retain information. So for example, if I'm stuffing my gathering full of content, there is no space for people to personalize it and put in their own thinking or relevancy. Uh, And then I'm looking for structure. So not just the agenda, but how we set expectations, how we get people from A to B. 
And you'd be surprised very few gatherings actually start by saying what people are going to walk away with. So those are the three things I'm looking for. So those are some pull moves, but what would you add on top of that? So, I mean, I think those are great. And certainly in terms of pull and participation and engagement, we lean on a lot of different techniques, certainly uh, big fans of things like liberating structures, of emergent agendas, of open space technology, of steering as we go. So so I think in terms of, of pull, we're, we're pretty squarely on the same page. <laughs> I, I am curious because we certainly run into clients where they are pretty stuck into using gatherings for push, what some of the things are that we've all seen to enhance those and enhance engagement there, even when we know that's not usually the effect that push has. Good push. Yeah. So I I mean, one of the things that I started doing a few years ago, if I had a leader that say wanted to do a strategy review, uh, was to ask that they send it beforehand and hold time, a lot of time for rounds and use rounds for questions and rounds for reactions, which is a pull move, you know, shoved into a push meeting. But, but what I find is that um, asking participants to do something like that sort of moves the strategy push from like Charlie Brown adults to, oh, this is something that I'm going to listen to because I'm going to be asked to form an opinion about it. Right, right. And I would, I would add to that, or I guess, you know, pivot off of that to say, when I do have portions of the agenda that I know are going to be pushy, I'll often radically constrain the time Mm. so that we're not abusing the, the platform essentially and abusing people's time and saying like, you know what, I know you were going to do a 45 minute update on the stats, but what if you only had seven minutes? Yeah. You know, what would you share then? And you can push like crazy for those seven minutes, but then that's kind of all you're going to get today. Yeah. (laughs) What I love about those tips is, you know, it's the old organizational development adage, which is involvement leads towards commitment. So the Mm. leader says, why do I have to pull? Can I just (laughs) go up there and speak? It's like, yes, you can. But if you want engagement and buy-in, people need to be involved. Uh, They need to own part of the change. And that doesn't happen with push. Well, I think just to finish off, let's let's talk about personalization. So are there personalization moves that, that any of the three of us have in mind that would be useful? to the the listener. Yeah. So in terms of personalization and going from one size fits all to a more personalized gathering, what that really is about is enhancing a sense of emotional connection. Mm. That's the main difference between an entertaining gathering. So edutainment, we've all been a part of those (laughs) versus engagement. So there's a few ways to do that to increase that personal connection. One is just to leave some room for digestion. So especially if you have a really content heavy gathering, if you don't leave a couple of minutes for people to think on their own or talk with someone, or it's really hard for people to take up someone's information as their own. Um, Another thing I like to do is just help the group create something together, like a shared artifact. There's a lot of ways to do that now with technology, but just to say, oh, there's a reason that I was there. I contributed something and there's something different about this one moment in time that I couldn't get anywhere else. I'm curious now that you're talking about personalization, it's it's reminding me of this concept of learning styles, which is actually a little bit controversial, but just to play it out, if different people learn and process and contribute differently, how does that factor into your personalization strategy? Hmm. That's interesting. It is controversial. You're right. I think what I rely on is the science that tells us that we learn more and we learn more deeply when learning on touches on something that we care about. 
So that's the personalization that I'm after. Those critical incidences, those personal needs where I find out what's at stake for the people in the room and then connect my content to their need. That's really what I'm after. In terms of learning styles, sure. Someone can digest by talking to somebody else, by writing, by thinking, by having something kinetic or tactile. All of those are options and choices that we can give folks. So I think we have played around probably in my case unwittingly or without <laughs> really being informed. <laughs> but uh you know just having like multimodal moments in a workshop or a gathering or even something like an all hands where you know we often will do things like buy toys for people to play with or <laughs> give people notepads and have very specific moments of reflection or ask people to like turn and parse a thing with someone else. And one of the things that I did not that long ago, actually because of reading that I was doing about adult learning for a different project was ask people to teach each other content immediately after having consumed it from us. Because what I find is like adults don't really know shit until they have to teach it to somebody else. (laughs) Um, And regardless of how you get the content and digest it, like you don't know it until you can do that. And I found that it makes people wildly uncomfortable and is also quite effective. I'm nodding my head so vigorously as you say that, Rodney. It's it's so true. And, you know, our job when we gather or share information, I believe, isn't just to share content, right? It's to close the gap between someone's ability to do something with it. So mm-hmm. these kinds of techniques really help that happen. Um, so yes, I completely agree. That's awesome. That makes sense. We actually recently tried something too that, that I think I was relatively happy with. We had a meeting that was meant to discuss and unpack a case of of a company that we study and and hold up as a good example. And we knew that we had a bunch of of busy executives coming into it. So what we actually ended up doing was sending them three different forms of media to choose their own adventure. So it was kind of like, you can watch the video or read the white paper or listen to the podcast. And then we're going to come together and have more of a engagement, personalization type conversation but by sort of meeting them with those different learning styles we definitely got you could just tell that folks had had dove into different components and had different parts of the story which was kind of fun i like that i'm going to use that (laughs) clients look out get ready (laughs) get ready for choose your own adventure content my only ask is that you actually choose and do something that'd be great speaking of adventures that we choose and adventures that we don't choose most of us have spent the last year in, in lockdown in different forms of very remote, very technology-driven gathering. And now there are, you know, 8 million articles and 10 research studies about Zoom fatigue and about, you know, what kind of engagement is possible online. Um, do you think that the kind of burnout around gathering online that's happened over the last year is a technology problem? Is it just a bad gathering design problem? What, it, what has it revealed to you about how we need to think about this going forward in a hybrid world? Yeah, I mean, maybe a bit controversial, but I think technology is a decoy. So, you know, we're blaming Zoom, which, you know, we have opinions about it, but behind every person using Zoom is a human deciding how to use it, right? Mm-hmm. So the technology or the lack thereof isn't really what creates or hinders connection, it's our choices. And we can't assume that when we're back in person, we're going to be more connected too. It's it's <laughs> it's really a skill that we need to develop, whether we're virtual or in person. 
And I will say, you know, when, when the pandemic started, the fact that we could then send content around helped us realize that we weren't gathering for content, right? Mm -hmm. We were really gathering for connection. So I think this time revealed the purpose of gathering and exposed our frustrations, which were already there, but heightened. Funnily enough, I actually suspect that everyone's going to get a temporary light pass on gathering in person for the first week, two weeks of it happening, because it's just so exciting to see another physical flesh and blood <laughs> human being that you're like, this is a great meeting. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but we're just so excited to not be in our bathrobe. That's right. Funny. And so that's what we want. We want to connect. So that's why we're gathering for what you just said. Speaking of Zoom, I don't know why I thought about this last night, mm. but I did truly because uh, brains are funny. What is both of your take about the virtual background in Zoom? <laughs> you go first, Lindsay. Uh, I don't have one. I, I mean, if you could see it right now, it's it's Aaron's book behind me and a bookshelf. <laughs> Truly, it mail. is. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, whatever. What about you, Aaron? I think, yeah, I think I have a problem with it, Rodney, because I think there's a couple different kinds of theater going on. So one of them is don't see my real life, right? Like I'm not a real person. I'm, I'm ahead in the void. And I, I do wonder about, I mean, I understand like, you know, not everybody has the house set up where they can have like a perfect 4k shot of themselves. And I I literally know people that are super smart and talented who are doing calls from like a laundry room. Mm -hmm. So I get the need to sort of professionalize it a little bit, but at the same time, it feels like a lot of folks are doing it to, to contain that vulnerability. And, and so I, I have some thoughts about that. And then I also, the one that really gets me though, I don't know how you feel about this is the like corporate mandated background where like, we're all lemmings in the, you know, Acme Corp world. And so everybody has the stupid purple Acme Corp background if the team chooses to do that for its own solidarity, I guess cool with me, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like another compliance procedure. What do you think? Well, it's interesting to me. You know, um, you're making me think we've been working from the most personalized place possible for the last year and a half, right? Which is our home. So if we're having to put the corporate background on, then are we squashing that sense of personalization at all? Mm-hmm. It's it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, strongly dislike them. (laughs) And there are a couple of reasons. One is because I totally take the point about, you know, perhaps people are in situations that they just are embarrassed for other people to see, in which case I'm like, do your thing. I totally get it. But I just, I don't think that that's the majority of cases. Like I think a lot of, especially because a lot of times when I get on a call with someone, the virtual background isn't on yet. So I can see that they're sitting in an office and then (laughs) they put it on. And like, I think it's a weird scrim over people's real lives that I think is, I, I don't, I don't like that people either feel obligated to do it or feel like they should hide The fact Mm. that they like have a home, but then also, (laughs) and potentially for me, what is offensive about it or can be is I get a really bad headache looking at that. So there's something about having the human head, face, shoulders over this thing that doesn't like catch. I don't know if it doesn't refresh as quickly. I don't understand technically what's going on, but I had never had a migraine until this year. And part of it was stress related. And part of it was because for a period of time, I was on calls almost all day with people who exclusively work used 
moving virtual backgrounds. Yes. And the doctor was like this. I'm seeing this a lot. She specifically asked me, how much time do you spend on Zoom? How frequently are people using virtual backgrounds that move? And 100%. I was like, all it's, day. It's the same effect that happens when people are wearing the Oculus too much. You're effectively messing with your visual cortex because nowhere in nature would you ever see that. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> I just feel like I wish, you know, it's like I, I, I'm delighted when someone's like cat walks across the keyboard or their kid comes in and is like, mom, I want to go to Jeff's house. I'm like, that's cool. Yes, We're people. Yes. It's fine. Let's go to Jeff's. So I don't know. That was a bit of an aside, but it occurred to me last night and I wanted to know what you all thought. <laughs> Love it. So I guess to, to wrap up, I'm curious about who are the masters of gathering? Like, where do we look for inspiration in this space? If we want to get ideas and, and be inspired, where would you look? Where do you go to, to get ideas? Yeah, you know, part of the reason why I became interested in this topic is because I saw these commonalities across the disciplines I've worked in. So entertainment and education and business. So comedians, musicians, professors, they're really good at matching a moment with a message to help people be affected, to feel, be moved, be changed, et cetera. So that's honestly where a lot of my lessons come from. Specifically, you know, Hannah Gadsby is a comedian. You know, you know Hannah Gadsby? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she's a master at gathering, not just mm-hmm. in helping people laugh, but helping them feel something. She did this in her most recent comedy special when I went to see her live. She walked on stage and she said, hey, so listen, my show isn't done. I need to cut about a minute or two. I'm going to look to you, audience, to tell me what I should cut. And in just that one line, she pulled people in. She told them that their voice mattered, that they had a role. She gave them some ownership. She didn't change her content. She just made one move. And then everyone was bought in. And I think, you know, again, it's not about this, oh, so much effort. It's just about these little choices that help gatherings be something that we do together, not just at people. I saw a comedian once who who had a similar kind of bit. And and what he would do is when a joke didn't go great, he actually pulled a note card out of his pocket and sort of (laughs) surreptitiously crossed off something on there and looked a little bummed and then put it back in his pocket. And it was hilarious. What it shows is that they're listening, yeah. right? And that's what that's why people want to gather, to know that their voice is important. Otherwise, I could watch this on my own later. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close because this is a, a form of gathering. It's a little bit one way, but we can, we can <laughs> make it more two-way audience if you want to. Lindsay, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. So you can find me at gatheringeffect.com. Perfect. And pre-order that book, yeah? Sure, absolutely. On the way. Awesome. Lindsay, it was so awesome to have you. And personally, I'm just so glad to hear your voice and giving you a virtual hug. Ah, back at you, Rodney. So fun. Thank you both. Absolutely. We'll do a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good every week. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and gather. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.